Hello. Hello, mate. Well, How are we doing? Good. Welcome to the Red Review podcast, everyone. How you doing, Jeremy? Uh, I'm very well, very well. A little, little bit tired, um, I'd say, and for no good reason that I can think of, to be honest. Um, well, we're recording on a Monday, so what have you, what have you done this weekend? That means you're on a Monday night and you're, uh, you're already exhausted. Uh, well, I have to say, I did have a wonderful weekend. Actually, we, we had a weekend away in Chester. Um, we went to Chester Zoo on Saturday, which, which was very warm, I have to say. Um, and with my slightly ginger complexion, um, that led to some sunburn. Um, <laughs> but really good, yeah, really good weekend. Stayed in a nice spa hotel place. Um, yeah, nice, nice sort of journey back. It was good. Was it the races this weekend? No, oh, I don't know actually, but no, no, we, we Kate, just... producer, producer Kate sitting next to me nodding because I'm sure I oh, saw your cousin. Yeah, Kate's cousin goes every year, gets well, absolutely, that's... absolutely sloshed. Oh, that might explain why there were like Lamborghinis and stuff at our hotel. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, just, that's just how you hang out, isn't it? Yeah, with Julesy's Ford Fiesta, um, <laughs> parked up in a line of big Chelsea tractors and, and Lamborghinis. It's funny. It's like, it's like being in my flat. You go in the basement, it looks like sort of um, some posh parking garage because it's like there's a Rolls Royce downstairs and a couple of Jaguars and stuff. And then I realised they're all wedding cars. And there's yes. a guy who, who lives in our block who runs a wedding car company and stores all his all his cars in the garage downstairs. <laughs> but it looks good anyway when people come in. They're like, oh, is that a Rolls Royce? Yeah, yeah, it's my neighbour. It's just, you know, just where yeah, yeah. I, the place I live. Like MTV Cribs or something. Yeah, <laughs> I might have to do that one time. Just go and take a picture next to it and put it on Instagram. I could be, a, I could be a proper Instagram influencer. So we've had a um, a bit of a knockback today. Which, yeah, uh, a bit disappointing. So for those who listened to the last episode, we were thinking about entering to speak uh, one of the speaking slots or one of the session slots at the APMP conference. But we've had the knockback to say that a podcast, uh, essentially a podcast isn't suitable or what was it? It was that we couldn't guarantee that people could opt out of being recorded if they're in the audience. And therefore it's unfair because they're paying to come to a conference and they should have access to all the sessions. Um, And even though I did point out that unless, you know, we're not the BBC. We haven't got microphones in the audience unless probably Katie and Jules running around with a microphone to give it to people so they can do Q&A. But it was, and I'm sure there's people for taking photos and smartphones and there'll be an official photographer and how they deal with GDPR and all that nonsense. But yeah, podcasts are a no-go at the uh, APMP conference, Jeremy. Yeah, but we're, we're not bitter, are we? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, just a bit of, it's just a bit of a shame because, you know... Certainly, the point of what the sorts of things that I'm up to, and I know you're in the same space, is being positively disruptive. Let's use some technology. Let's do things a bit differently for the good of the bidding discipline and uh, falling at the first hurdle. But we'll we'll think of something else and other things. Uh, we'll still have some fun, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, there'll still be plenty of great sessions at the conference, and sessions that are run every single year under a different heading by the same. Consultants. 
Oh, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. That, do, that does a little bit. That does a little bit. There are, um, I mean, the voting has changed it, but there were people that lit, pretty much every year just ran the same session. You know, if I have to listen to one more session about how to write an executive summary from a certain consultant that has an executive summary um, piece of software, then um, yeah, I might, I might, uh, might have to ask for a refund. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, yeah, I, I hear that it's all changing for the good. Uh, I, I didn't go last year and I had really positive feedback on the conference and the event. So, um, same venue, kind of same voting format. So hopefully, uh, hopefully, hopefully they improve. Yeah, well, I, I was thinking about taking a stand and all that good stuff, but it's, yeah, don't know. I think I might, you coach me and I think you might be right. I might go as an attendee this year and see how it goes. Although I have committed to go to the one in America next year, actually. Have you? Yeah, well, just partly because I think it's a nice place to go on holiday because it's in Nashville. Oh. Um, so I've, I've got a uh, sign-off from Mrs. Brim, uh, buy-in. Um, Is she about, uh, Yeah, she's coming. She's talking about her parents uh, meeting us there because they live abroad in Crete. Uh, and making a bit of a because we love a driving holiday in the states and all that sort of stuff anyway thinking about flying into there doing the conference then driving up a few through a few places to chicago and flying home from there nice um and, and, and there's the session in the conference in march in amsterdam that tony's organizing yeah that's true that's true in too europe so yeah, that's first then actually, isn't it? So it's that, that, and then the one in the States is in May, I think. Yeah. And then UK in um, in um, the summer. Well, yeah. Or maybe by next year. We're going to convince them that we should do a podcast, so maybe we'll do uh, bid, the bid pod, uh, the Red Review podcast live next year. Maybe. 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 I'll, have to, I'll have to beg um, Gareth a bit more. Gareth the chair, vice chair, whatever. Um, yeah, never mind. Not that I'm bitter, but I am very bitter and disappointed because no one likes to lose, and I felt like we've lost the first hurdle. It's like not getting through a PQQ. Didn't, oh, didn't, didn't, pass, don't say didn't that. pass the first stage. Oh no, no, you said that. Non-compliant. Anyway, non-compliant. Let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> you move me on. Yeah. So, um, what are we chatting about today? Uh, you wanted it's just us two today isn't it no interview interview. Um, so I'm giving a speech at a procurement conference on uh, the 10th of July so Wednesday next week Um, and you wanted to talk through what that's about I think hopefully it's a little bit educational sounds a great idea idea. so shall we get into it yes let's go for it Don't forget that we'd still love your feedback. Our survey is open until the 14th of July and you can find the links in the show notes or on our Twitter page. It's only eight questions long, so it shouldn't take you too long to complete. And as a thank you to everyone that takes part, as long as you leave us your email address, you'll be entered into a prize draw to win a £25 gift voucher. We really look forward to hearing from you. So go on then, Jeremy, tell me about the conference. Where is it? What is it? And what are you doing? 
Um, so it is the YPO World of Procurement Conference. Uh, it's in London, and I knew you were going to ask me where it was, and I've forgotten. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember which hotel or conference venue it's in because I've been to a few of these things recently. Uh, but it's in London anyway. Um, and so the theme of the conference is about enabling change. Um, they have got, YPO uh, have signed an enterprise agreement with Amazon that's made the news a bit recently um, with the idea being that, so YPO have got a big catalogue business where schools and hospitals, etc., can buy stuff, pens, pencils, whatever. Um, but there are things that they don't stock in their catalogue that, uh, their um, customers want from time to time hamster cages for the, the class hamster or whatever it might be and so they've got a deal where they can back that source of stuff off to Amazon so there's the quite excitingly the head of government from Amazon in the States uh, is coming to give a keynote speech uh, sort of off the back of that announcement wow. um, so that'll be quite interesting to see uh how they're talking about enabling change through those sorts of partnerships is quite exciting because YPO are quite, for a public sector owned organisation, they are fairly entrepreneurial. And my, my agreement with them, uh, the, the big toolkit stuff, I guess is a much, much, much smaller um, example of that. So that's cool. Um, they've also got my mate John Ferno uh, on as second on stage. He was the guy who procured the Olympics and was commercial director at the Home Office for a bit. Um, the guy so the Olympics. That's 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 the billing. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. I, I, I also procure the Olympics. There must be more than one of them. I don't think he did it on his own. No, I think that's a fair comment. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he, he he led the charge and had some fascinating stories about how they did that. He's, uh, he, I take him for dinner now and again, and we compare notes on things. He's good value. Um, so he's on second, and I'm on third, talking about enabling change in procurement from a bidder's perspective. Um, so it's been an interesting day today because not only have we found out that we've not got through um, for that APMP speaking slot, but I also had a phone call from YPO. Um, I'm not going to say they told me off for what I'd put in my speech because they've, they've opened my slide deck and read the notes at the bottom and realised that perhaps I was being a bit punchy. Um, perhaps I'd taken the challenge of being a bit provocative a bit too far. So I've spent uh, the last couple of hours after work uh, redrafting my slides for them and taking things out that would probably be slightly offensive. To, oh, gosh, uh, God, so what are you saying that's offensive? On Was it enabling change in procurement? Yeah, so basically the example I gave was that HS2, uh, the entire design of HS2, the rolling stock, the the track and everything was out of date before it was procured. Um, in effect, it's it's based on you know fifties and sixties tech when we've we've already got mag trains in Asia and obviously there's Hyperloop and all that sort of stuff. Um, but and then actually there's also a line there was a line in there that autonomous vehicles become legal in 2021. So by the time uh, HS2 opens the final bit of line to Manchester. Autonomous vehicles would have been elite, would have been legal for twelve years. Wow. Um, now unless, you imagine, you, you, unless you, Boris gets in. Well, of course, Boris is going to flip just two and start it from the north and run it south. So oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds sensible. Um, <laughs> so 
yeah, that was my leading in example of um, not asking the market for the answer to a question or a problem, telling the market what the answer is, and then making us jump through hoops to try and fit to that out of date solution. Um, so the whole the whole premise of my presentation is about why don't you ask us? Um, you know, so there's, there's a whole bit on the strategic sourcing uh, approach that, that um, procurement people use and then our kind of opportunity life cycle all the way from business planning, account planning, capture planning, bidding, etc. And actually it's the same thing, just other sides of the fence. And if we just talked much earlier in the process and they posed the market with problems rather than telling us what the answer is and just getting us to bid that, perhaps we would come up with a better answer. Uh, but yeah, the, the long and the short of it was that they've got some guests from HS2 in the audience. So <laughs> I was uh, told to take that example out. Yeah, I, I, it's difficult, right? Because I'm sure actually they've done a lot of consultation with the market because they would have done it through the hybrid bill, going, you know, the consultation for that, going through Parliament. And, and to be fair to HS2 on the procurement exercises that I have been involved in or I have seen involved, they have actually been quite progressive with how they have come out to the market to engage early and kind of get feedback on. And it's not as fundamental as do we need to train or not, but kind of lotting strategies, commercial function, uh, what should they be asking for, specifications, that kind of thing. So I, 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 can, I guess I can see... I can see potentially why they asked you to take it out because it's probably not all black and white and there are some really good procurement people in HS2, but there probably also also are some less good people and probably a load of contractors as well who just turn turn the turn the wheels as well as all the good contractors who had who genuinely had value and want to do do the best for the um uh, for the projects, so, uh, yeah, I suppose I, I suppose I will give them that, Jeremy. You're probably being a bit unfair on just too, but it's but it's yeah, yeah. at a smaller scale, um, and may, you know, trying to do an open market sourcing on give me a two hour and a ninety minute journey time from Manchester to London, you didn't get in line, but it probably isn't as simple as just that, is it? Is the connectivity with the network and resilience because you know the trains will be able to run on other lines and um increase increasing capacity on existing um corridors so that you know network rail trains can run on the hs2 lines or that sort of thing i mean that's that's one of the big challenges isn't it is is retrofitting it into the into the network yeah yeah no that's all true um how do you, but... how do you think it'll go down then when you start talking about like you know business planning account planning capture planning and that kind of hierarchy of how we want to engage with clients do you think do you think they'll be open to bidders being more honest and open about actually i can see you spend x million a year i want to do this and this is the opportunity i'm looking for and can you help me develop my capture plan with you i, I wonder how that'll go down with procurement people well the the work i've done with ypo so far um, has shown that they have no idea that we, well, procurement people have very little idea of all the stuff that we do on the, our side of the fence. Um, they, they, well, 
part of my presentation is about how our relationship is a bit broken, actually. And again, it's, it comes down to that understanding and spending a bit more time together to understand where each other's coming from, because we tend to be communicating through portals these days yeah. um, with a lot less of that sort of interaction. And it's quite easy to, you know, it's a bit like when you text the wife and she takes it the wrong way and suddenly, you know, you're, you're in a fight with, or whatever. People, people can read things the wrong way, can't they? Um, and so... Does that happen a lot? Um, yes. <laughs> um, and actually, the, in, in the presentation, the, the, I think there was a turning point, uh, which was around the time when Virgin Trains, Richard Branson, challenged the West Coast mainline procurement. Uh, so not the one that's been in the press recently with, with Stagecoach, but the time before, a few years ago, um, that was the first highly visible challenge of a procurement i think that really made the the front page headlines um and i think since then there's been a sort of deluge of challenges of procurements and etc which is part of the relationship between procurement departments and us as business developers on the other side sort of breaking down a bit and i i think um I think where I, the a good example of that is probably the Eurostar and the no deal brexit ferries right so they need yeah. extra freight capacity and someone just went, well, how does freight get to Europe? A ferry will we'll put an agreement in place of ferries and no one actually said to the market, can you give me capacity to get more goods from the UK to Europe? And of course, Eurostar was a viable option, but because they hadn't done their market analysis and engaged with the wide enough the market and publicized it, um, they came a cropper. Was it 30, 40 million pounds that to pay Eurostar in the end? Yeah. Yeah, it's all a bit mad. Um, but the, I mean, the thing for me is the classic sort of for more than 10 years now, we've heard the phrase from the public sector, they've got to get more, more from less or whatever it is. Um, I think we've gone beyond the point where that's feasible with austerity and the rest of it. And if Brexit goes the way that it looks like it might, um, I think that's not a tenable or sustainable position anymore. Um, so, so we're going, they're going to have to do something quite different, different and radical, I think. Uh, and I think part of the answer is they need to start leveraging the private sector and our capability. So the, the example that I put alongside the HS2 thing was the, the Tesla South Australian battery project um, where uh, the Tesla CEO, Elon Musk, had a bet with an Australian billionaire, uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks, that he could deliver um, a massive battery farm in South Australia in under 100 days. Um, and they did it in 57. Um, but it, So it's eradicated severe power outages for that whole region of Australia, saved them $40 million compared to other backup, uh, less productive and, and reliable backup solutions. And it has worked. There was a power station went down and it filled the gap in the grid in 140 milliseconds. Um, wow. Now, now that was because someone asked the question, you know, we've got this problem, someone come and, you know, solve it. And Elon, bless him, went for it. Now, you know, imagine what we could do on a HS2 or instead of a Hinkley power station, if, if we were just asked as a market what, what the answer, what the possible answers could be. Um, and so I, I think 
they're going to have to move to that kind of thinking. And so there's a bit on hackathons as an example. Um, you know, why, why not just invite the market into a room, big firms, little firms, third, you know, uh, social enterprises, um, and let's try and solve a problem in a day kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, why not? It happens how, in other markets. I wonder how that would go down because you'd get competitors in the room and would they be willing to be open and share their ideas without the reward of a job at the end of it? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if it moves them to a place where it's lower risk, eat more easily investable, um, more aligned with where they actually want their business to go rather than just responding to what clients tell them they think they need. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it would be a significant change, but uh, I've I've seen it recently. I can't name names, but there's a client of a client of mine um, who just put three contractors in a room and said, we've got a billion pound program. This is where the projects are roughly going to be. Uh, you three contractors sort it out amongst yourselves. So I'll be back in a couple of hours. <laughs> really? um, yes. Wow. And they have, and it will be probably the most efficient building program in the country. Um, Cause they've got, you know, a single aligned supply chain uh, contractors marking each other's homework, best team, you know, sort of beauty parades as it were per job, but based on the be best teams over at a profit agreed up front, um yeah it's it well let's I'll, I'll have to report back once it breaks in the press what it is uh, that's not public sector by the way i should say um it has kind of worked done i've seen that happen in the public sector so that's how the a14 kind of alliance and it's an alliance of the small the lowercase a was for procured three contractors one for either end of the so one for the connection at huntington one for the connection at Cambridge and then want to do the middle bit with the big bridge and the three contracts said actually there's a more efficient way to do this if we came together and shared resources shared systems and that was I suppose that was post procurement but that was driven by the market saying there's a better way to do this than the way you've procured it and actually yeah yeah and, and it, it was the same with the uh, cabinet office's big central government uh, office fit out program that they used HMRC as the uh, anchor program, as it were, but all, all central government uh, organisations can sort of pile in and use the framework. Uh, but just HMRC's office uh, fit-out program will be the biggest single uh, fit-out program in the UK in history, I would think, because um, they're moving from 800 and something offices to 230. 30 of them are £45 million fit-outs. Um, so they literally had to look at the supply chain to figure out if there was enough capacity across the whole market in terms of the key, the key packages and things. So it was the same thing that the big fit out firms who got on, you know, did all kinds of work streams of work around capacity and capability and who should put, deliver which projects and all sorts. Very, very smart. Very clever. Um, so what, are but the, I, what are the takeaways you want procurement people to take away then from the talk? Um, so I want them to figure out how they can talk to us earlier and, and level problems at us rather than what they think the answer is. Um, three pin notices, you know, the new EU regs allow them to do this. There's no reason why not. Um, 
uh, I want them to make sure they don't stifle innovation. And then the other key bit that we've not covered is about certainty. So I saw um, the chief exec of Crown Commercial Services give a speech on Wednesday last week at a procurement conference mm. at Excel. Um, and it was quite interesting because he was they, they, there was a big thing about um, dynamic purchasing systems and how... Uh, CCS are procuring things off into the future, and I, I put my. I was only one. I was one of only two people who dared ask a question. But my question was about certainty that we, as the private sector, um, need certainty to enable us to invest in people and technology. Um, and so, I know we're going to talk about DPS another time, but you can't just have a cold list of contractors with no pounds and pence associated with it you know a, a framework that may never be used a hypothetical uh, procurement piece i think actually the the cabinet office example with that hmrc program is a great example where they've got an anchor client that provided a billion quids worth of work or whatever it was and then other public bodies can piggyback on it i i think that's the way to do it because it gives us as the private sector the certainty of workload uh, to be able to really put our shoulder behind it yeah um, these sort of hypothetical frameworks or certainly the DPSs I don't think are helpful although oh, did you see I forgot to say earlier um, there was an article today I can't remember who it was it was Civil Engineers Society or someone like that is challenging government around having too many frameworks that overlap nationally regionally locally because um, you know I, I recognise we're talking quite a lot of construction examples here between the two of us but um, we're going to have a shed load of regional frameworks plus the CCS construction framework out in the world in the next year. Um, I'm not sure if I was a client how I'd know which one to pick. Do you know what? Often though, it's a money make money generation thing. Yeah. So at regional level, a lot of clients I know that have set regional frameworks up have done it on the model of set it up for my council. There are seven neighbouring councils, NHS trusts, police, colleges that could use my framework and I'll charge them 1% and um, and it's a return for my cash-strapped council. So I think, I think there is a, a, a kind of an incentive to set them up, but actually the ones that are really successful are managed frameworks. And I think there's a difference between someone just setting a framework up and getting bidders to buy it. Procure. They set a ridiculous value, billion pounds. Mm. They can't get a load of bidders to bid for it. And then actually they haven't got any work out of the back of it that anyone can do. Um, and they're just kind of just like a, theory, a theoretical framework. I think, I think the market's getting wise to that. And actually there's a, um, a procurement note, a Scottish procurement note, which is all about kind of, theoretical frameworks and it, it, it is kind of advising public bodies not to use um frameworks that have been set up under slightly dubious methods whether that's where they've been set up kind of on a hope and a prayer um that someone will use them which which some of them are or actually which is kind of one of the aims of the note was where private bodies had found a way private organizations had found a way of getting around OGU and had set frameworks up and then were making money off the public sector by running a framework. And there is at least one organization I know of 
So they partner with a college trust, mm. procure a framework, and then they take 50% of the royalties and the, the NHS trust, or let's say the college takes 50% of the royalties from the framework. And that's so the yeah, yeah. 3%. And these frameworks can actually be potentially in the billions of billions of pounds of turnover. Um, and it's a smart, it's a smart business model, but ethically it's probably not quite right to yeah. create a cut um, out of public sector funds. Uh, yeah agreed i'm not wholly comfortable with it um oh the the other question that somebody asked the chief executive of ccs was about if their framework should be mandated across the public sector and his answer was no actually uh in, interestingly he said they're only and in answer to my question actually he said they're only just getting visibility of the spend across central government let alone local government and other departments um so they they don't they don't want procurements to go underground was the way he said it um so um yeah they're not in a position i don't think to mandate things and yeah. to drive to drive out those other types of frameworks let's say i mean there's obviously man there's obviously the frame ccs frameworks are mandated across central government and actually in recent years i've seen more of the stronger arm's length bodies like MOD or ESFA, Education Skills Funding Agency, um, or the Ministry of Justice, actually using the CCS framework and actually using the CCS framework to procure some really big, chunky things. Um, and, to, and to give you an example, the, um, there's an organization called DENS, who it's this kind of hidden government organization. They spend 15 billion pounds a year on defense. That's that's the entire roads budget for five years that the UK spends, and they spend in a year on defence. Let's just put that wow. in perspective. And that's not including um, the the defence infrastructure organisation who obviously spend billions on property. All all DNS do is they buy and maintain equipment and services. Um, anyway, they went out and procured a commercial partner framework. Went out through OJU, um, and. They procured it in about 14 months, I think, start to finish for negotiated procedure. The MOD are now looking to expand that framework. So they're going to re-procure it through the CCS framework and they'll do that entire procurement in eight weeks. Well, plus, let's say plus market engagement, about 12 to 14 weeks rather than wow. 14 months. And that's the difference, like all of a sudden government can see in their, um, in their procurement activities, would you rather do something in 14 months or 14, 14 weeks and yep. potentially get the outcome? Yeah, no, that's true. And I, I do get that, the, the, the speed to market piece and the efficiencies in that. Um, so I do agree with that. And I, I'm going to say that in this speech, but the key to it for me is that there's got to be some spend attached to and, and an anchor client or something for me to, to those sorts of things. Yeah however they do it. And then the, the, the other point that I want to make um, in the speech is about uh, social value, social enterprises as well. Um, so again, you know, actually the, the schools program stuff is a great example. So, you know, we contractors get pushed to do certain things around social value, usually to have an apprentice on a project. So you imagine a seven million pound primary school project, you get like one apprentice. Uh, but the problem is those projects only last one year, probably. 
uh, on on site. That apprentice probably doesn't drive, for instance. Now, what happens, particularly in more rural areas, you know, my Morgan Sindle area is sort of Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire, Buckinghamshire. The next project could be 20, 30, 40, 50 miles away. Um, And so for me, if they can give us, if local authorities and or the DfE could give us programmes of projects, we can do something much more meaningful around social value, much longer term, bigger impact, more of it, um, because we can see the opportunities to invest and not be inhibited by those sort of punitive, fairly low-grade KPIs, really, because we'd be smashing them. Um, so that's another point I want to make. If you if you procure things in the right way and give us certainty, that enables uh, things like social value and for us to be able to leverage in more social enterprises, etc. Yeah, I imagine it'll be, it'll be a, fa- a fascinating day. It's always interesting to see how procurement people um, kind of interface what they talk, what they're talking about in terms of like you know sessions and themes and what's the buzz. You know, category management is quite big at the moment in the public sector, um, uh, and, and kind of where they where they see procurement going as well. So I think I think that'll be a really interesting day. Um, producer Katie is, is giving us the time signal. Yes, so she's correct. She's telling us we've, 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 we should, we should move on. So, um, well, good luck in the, um, in the presentation. Is it being recorded? I don't know, actually. I don't know. If it isn't, I might do a webinar version of it afterwards. Oh, well, that'd be good. Yeah. And add back in the HST stuff. <laughs> Uh, this this means you're never going to work for it just to you know that don't you well i'm not i don't know much about trains anyway <laughs> so our question of the day comes via twitter and it was what do you look for in freelance resources as a bid director. So I guess this could be bid writers or graphic designers or, or bid managers even. Um, Cause I, I read somewhere, I can't remember every time I was talking to someone that the number of bid freelancers or people who've, who've kind of come out of bidding and gone, gone freelance has rocketed in the past few years. Like the market is really saturated. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not that I shouldn't put people off, but it's it definitely is. Um, there's a lot more people who are kind of getting to a point in their career when they actually want a bit of um, to do their own thing or they want a bit of better, better work work life balance and go on their own. So, um, what do, what what? Did, so, did you used to use contractors when you were in previous roles at Arcadis and Mace and those types of things? Uh much more at Mace than I'd experienced before, actually. But yes, and and obviously with my new business, I, I don't employ anyone as it's one of the golden rules of the business. It's a complete gig economy uh, thing. So this has come into much more sharp focus because all of the copy that's written for my website is a lady who travels the world with a MacBook um, on, on a retainer, my web developers, uh, a, f- a freelancer, um, you know, it's all, it's wow. all that, that kind of stuff. So what do you look for? So 
I think in the context of, of a bid team, I think uh, Jack Strickland's point uh, from our breakfast event actually still stands that if they've got spelling mistakes and stuff in their CV, it's probably not a great start. Um, so, because classically you're going to get, it depends how you're engaging them. If you're using uh, an agency uh, who's got a big roster of, of, of freelance resources, it likely start the first touch point as a CV. Um, and so clearly, because we're bidding professionals, and we're generally selling teams and people using CVs, the CV should be pretty awesome. Yeah, um, as, that's as true. A standard. I've seen a lot of crap CVs from bid people who actually both applying for jobs and also people kind of pitching for work. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the underlying point to this question. Uh, I, I think it's a fact that there's, there's only about 20% of people who work in bids who are genuinely really ace at it. There's a lot of most people fall into bids. You know, this is my bigger bugbear about our discipline and uh, how we professionalise it because there's no one at university today, I would suspect, anywhere in the world thinking, oh, I really fancy being a bid writer or a bid manager. I bet they don't know the jobs exist. Yeah. Um, and so you get a lot of adverse selection. And that leads to, you know, you know what it's like trying to recruit permanent bid people. It's it's bloody hard work. You have to kiss a lot of frogs to find your princes and princesses. Um, and you expect your recruitment consultants to do a decent job and to have met people and all of that sort of stuff because they get paid a decent fee, but they, they don't always. And no. people, people slip through the net. Conversely, you also get people who write a fantastic CV who actually aren't really up for doing the work yeah. pulling their weight so there's a lot of pitfalls so in terms of yeah, going back to the actual question though so that <laughs> you know the some of the key competencies of what you're looking for particularly if you're going to be using this person in a you know a high pressure time-bound environment is that attention to detail under pressure because that's a big part of the job um, depending on whether you're talking about a bid writer or a bid manager, but in general terms, that's you know, bidding folk, isn't it? Um, unfortunately, in the world these days, and for want of a better term, um, you want just the right amount of mad. Um, so not so mad that you can't possibly work for them and they're a bit of a box of frogs, but also some of the best bidding people and the ones that can work under pressure uh, are the ones who are motivated, a bit entrepreneurial, a um, bit different, um, you know, you, the best bid teams are the ones that have got a bit of diversity bit, and a bit of an interesting crowd, I've tended to find. Mm. If, you've got a bun- if you've got a bunch of quiet people sitting, uh, you know, sort of tinkering away with stuff to themselves, that's on, on a, when you, the sort of bid where you're bringing consultants in, particularly if it's a big one, you need that sort of mix of personalities, I think. Yeah. Um, but That's interesting. Yeah, I think it's got to be, uh, yeah, within certain parameters. Um, so I, I, I have genuinely found, and I don't use a lot of external consultants. That actually, I'm probably looking for someone who actively builds a relationship before approaching me for freelance work. Yeah, uh, I don't like going for agencies. So I know, and I, I obviously a big fan of Martin Smith and, and bid solutions and, and other agencies, Thornton low, et cetera. But I, um, I find, I find 
some I have found that some agencies are a bit kind of they just got you know a thousand people on their roster or eight hundred people on the roster and they just chuck CVs at you and they don't really yes. listen to what you're looking for and so I'd much rather build a personal relationship with a with a bid consultant who then can work on multiple bids rather than um, kind of spot buying and I guess that comes back to our previous conversation about um, engaging with the market earlier you know I'd, I'd rather go out early know what kind of thing I'm looking for and engage with a smaller group of people to see if it fits rather than just like ringing up an agency going I need a bid manager for this long who does this type of work can you just give me one to plug in um, and maybe that does subtly align to your thing of the guy have the right kind of behaviors mm. in your case madness um to fit into your to fit into your team that i can kind of assess that better by knowing someone than it, i can reading reading a cv because i think um, oh for sure but it's got it, it's got to be that trust there hasn't there as well because you are bringing these people in to in effect help you deliver stuff that's on your scorecard yeah uh, and either you get a bonus for or if it goes really wrong sacked for yeah. Um, so I'd say because Kate, Kate's giving us the symbol again, so she's being yeah. more of an active producer now. Yeah, she's um, right. She's right. Um, so we're saying build a relationship before you apply, and make sure your CV is cracking and probably bespoke to the opportunity. Yeah. Um, I, I would I would add a like personal recommendation from in the sector is a big thing for me. Like um, if you've got a like letters of or quotes from my competitors telling me how good you are, then that's going to go a long way. Cause actually I think bid people would, would probably only give a compliment if you genuinely, genuinely were good. Um, yeah. And I, I think to add to that, that they're probably going to need sector specialism in the sector that the bid you want to use them on. Yeah. Is for I, much more than a perm. I uh, think I am getting to the point where, Sector specialism, spe- sector specialism is important because of the complexity of the bids that we do. Although, having said that, I must caveat that that the team I have in supporting me at the moment are not sector specialists and are pure pure writers. And equally, that is adding a lot of value because they there's kind of an un, there's like there's no assumed knowledge, and therefore they are just questioning and writing and editing. Um, to make things like read really well rather than kind of using sector lingo and kind of assuming people understand stuff. So I'll, I'll, I'll hold my judgments in the bid, but generally I'd prefer sector knowledgeable bid writers and consultants. So we're done, Jeremy, for another episode in the bag. We nearly managed to keep it shorter, didn't we? Um, as, as, as per the feedback, you're going to talk about in a second. Yeah, so we, we ran a, a competition to get feedback um, and, and we've decided actually, haven't we, to extend it for a couple more weeks just to see, um, to give people a bit, more, a bit more of a chance. But some interesting feedback. So if you go on the Red Review Pod Twitter, there is a link on there um, that takes you to a survey in sort of nine questions takes about two minutes to do um, and Kate says and it's in the show notes um, and we'll select someone at random to win a £25 gift voucher I don't know what the gift voucher will be for yet because 
the, the go-to would be Amazon, but as they don't pay any tax, I'm trying to avoid using Amazon where possible. It'll have to be for that book place. Wordery, yeah. Word, yeah. It could be, couldn't it? We'll, we'll think of something. We'll think of something. Could, could, if, if we keep if, if we keep saying their name enough, surely they'll sponsor us. <laughs> could be for, for producer Kate's business, her new business. Anyway, so the feedback, interesting. So we've had a few um, bits of feedback. It, 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 as you see, it goes into the spreadsheet, so we can kind of calculate it. So a couple of trends. People on uh, I, people are saying either keep it under thirty minutes or between thirty and forty-five minutes. So we're probably about 45 minutes on this one. So we're just we're just hitting it. Um, they interesting an even split between do people prefer, prefer debates or interviews? So there's not a lot you can take from it. Um, but do you know what people don't like the most? What's that? The jingles. Really. <laughs> <laughs> so I must point out that we use um, a, an app called Anchor to record and obviously people who listened originally know that we originally just went on Anchor because um, it, it, after after time it then puts you onto the other platforms like iTunes which actually now is our fastest growing area of how people listen to us um, it's now 20-30% of our listeners listen on iTunes uh, okay um, but there are there's only, there's like a select um, number of options. There's a lot um, for um, sound effects and backing music and jingles and all sorts of st- interludes. Um, I thought I'd chosen some nice ones, but we've had a few bits of feedback that people don't don't really like them. Producer Kate says she likes them. Thanks. She's doing the ironing. What, what do you think of the jingles? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think I've got used to them. I, I think I remember when I first heard the first edit of our first one, I thought that's some individual music. Um, but I think I got used to it. I don't know whether we stick with it. I don't think the jingles are going to put people off, to be honest. And I think it would be funnier if we stuck with it. But I don't know. I'll, I'll, I, take, I don't know. I'll I, take Katie's professional I, work. I selected them all from like the, the funky hip hop selection. There is like an orchestra section. Um, there's a bit more kind of like um, dancey electro beats that we could choose from. Maybe maybe next episode we could just spend the whole 30 minutes playing different options. <laughs> Sampling beats. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll tell you what. May, maybe we'll have a look then at changing some of the some of the music. What I really like about it though is you choose the music and then in, like like now when we're speaking and in the intro. It will it will just loop the music over and over again and time it so it finishes properly. So yeah, it's very clever. It's it's a great app. I have to say I've been really impressed. I don't know how they make any money. No. Maybe that's the model is that you don't make money. You just build listeners and then and then put advertising on it, which they have started doing now. Although it doesn't, you can't uh, do advertising in the UK yet, so we can't make any money from this. But if so, we could have made at least probably forty p by now. Um, and uh, I guess you just build your build your users and then go for an IPO and sell your shares and make millions. Isn't that how how technology works these days? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. Anyway, so um, change the jingles, and apart from that, no definitive feedback because the the mix of feedback is pretty much fifty fifty on 
things like debate versus interview, uh, even down to like, do you follow us on Twitter at the Redview Pod? Fifty percent follow us, fifty percent don't. <laughs> uh, so, um, but yeah, I, I should also mention because if they're listening, then fuck you. Someone took the time to give us really shit feedback of like, um, would you listen to the podcast again, score, or would you recommend it? No, uh, you know, it's rubbish. Your, you know, sound quality is awful. Blah, blah blah. Didn't put the email down, so I'm afraid, dick, dickhead, you can't win the voucher. But <laughs> took took time out of their day to to just be a dick. So fuck off. Everyone else, everyone else was very honest with their feedback. So thank you. Uh, great. Yes, you took that. You took that really badly. You you said you were going to be quite quiet about it, but no, no, you didn't. no I just, it just me because because they didn't need to go on and be negative. Like no, constru- constructive. Would be like, this is what I don't like. I don't like that you rabbit on too much about X, Y, and Z or. The jingles are crap, like most people said, or um, the sound quality is always not very good because we're recording on phones and it's a free app, that sort of thing. Um, someone crit- someone did criticise the editing, so um, I said there's sometimes the the timing between segments is too long. That's the jingles. That's the jingles. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, just to go on and 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 just be rude. Uh, anyway, sorry. Well, there you go. That's it. There, there was one bit of uh, constructive criticism in there that probably was correct, but uh, we need to sell my stuff less because uh, this podcast isn't about my business. I, I think that's. I think that's probably fair. Um, we need to keep it. Oh, I don't know. I, I, don't, I, don't you, I don't think you oversell. I think. I think. I think personally, it's really interesting to hear the journey of a new startup which is what you are in in the bidding world so uh i wouldn't change you jeremy i love you just the way you are <laughs> thank you sir. i love the jingles just the way they are and, and, yeah and so everyone who complained about the jingles it's actually not our choice it's producer katie's choice <laughs> <laughs> um, so have you got anything interesting exciting planned apart from your ypo speech in the next couple of weeks um, in between Morgan, Morgan Sindling, I've got some additional Morgan Sindling. They've uh, they're so happy with the work that I've done. They've commissioned another piece of work during the month of July, so I've got a big research piece to do for them. Um, and then on Wednesday this week, I've got some pretty furious back to back. I think I've got six meetings in one day, which is a bit mad, uh, with lots of different potential clients, which are all quite exciting. Um, yeah, so yeah, the, sort of the usual, just uh, running about, making stuff happen. How about uh, you? I've got, I've got a big bid on, and I've got another one that's just started that I can't really look at until this other one goes in. So, um, yeah, I've got, I've got a day, a two days of reviews the next couple of days, and some some questions are pretty good. We're only at pink, but um, they're kind of full full on drafts, evidenced up. Probably 20, 30 word count. They need a good edit, cull, and polish. But there's a couple of them going a bit tits up. And you and on big, complex bids when the client is asking questions that we've never seen before. Um, 
or has a new delivery model in which case this is a kind of different way of doing things that's, that's been done before there are going to be a couple of questions that lag but it does stress me out so um, I'll be working six seven days a week for the next month hooray I might take Saturdays off but um, yeah I'll be working working flat out get it done get it done and then I'm going to have a bit of a chill until the next one starts well the, well, the next one will be carrying on but I'll have a bit of a chill um, go on I was just going to say that there'll always be bids they will they will they, they do just never stop um, which I wonder why is why people go freelance they can have a bit of a break in between bids I don't know maybe that's what I'm yeah. that that and attractive tax models yeah <laughs> uh, but you know a lot of uncertainty anyway. and I reckon it, I mean maybe we should get a couple of freelancers on to chat about it because obviously like and 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 I know I know I'm maybe the exception because I do big bids and big bids have big delays but of the stuff I've done this year probably on average each one has been delayed by at least a month maybe even two months between stages one of them up to four months and if you're a freelance writer let's say we only contract when the bid comes and we we're very honest and say look we'll you know if you get a better offer we understand you've got to go elsewhere but i guess it does make it challenging in planning your own workload if you'd kind of committed to a client and they're a bit more bullish than we were and kind of want you to go exclusive and everything else and then you turned work down and then procurement is delayed and then yeah we'll have to get someone i think that's a good point we'll get, we'll get yes if you'd like to come on the podcast with us literally you have to download an app and have a evening free we're that organized um do do drop us an out on twitter and we'll, we'll get someone on and we'll we'll have a chat about freelancing Very cool. good. well have a wonderful week jeremy you too chat and um see you soon bye. see you soon bye-bye Hi, it's Katie, the producer of the Red Review podcast. We've reached the end of the show now, and links to the topics you've heard about today are all included in the show notes, so do take a look. If you'd like to feature in the show, as Mike and Jeremy mentioned, if you think you've got something interesting to talk about, or you're a freelancer, drop us a message via Twitter, or you can email the Red Review podcast at gmail.com, and we'll see you next time.